wanted to dig into the annuity market for a while. Annuities have fallen out of fashion in recent years, which is odd because if you ask people what they want their retirement income to look like, more often than not, what they'll describe sounds awfully like an annuity. As Mark and I discuss in this podcast, there are good reasons why they've fallen out of favour. However, the pendulum does tend to overcorrect, and maybe with interest rates rising, we're about to see a bit of a comeback. enough about retirement line tell me a bit about your business and also i'm just curious to know what's the journey that's brought you here yeah of course yeah so retirement line is a very simple setup to be honest with you they're, they're just a non-advised annuity broker they, they don't do anything else there is a slight asterisk in regards to the fact that they also offer fixed term annuities now i know annuities in the name but it, it's really flexi access drawdown investment product yeah yes exactly so that there is that sort of slight caveat there but that they're very good at what they do and i think you know going back to 2012 2013 when i joined the business they were about seventh intermediary you know at that time and since 2015 there's obviously quite a, a big shake up and since 2017 I believe they've been the top had the top spot ever since for me it's a bit of a funny journey actually I related quite a lot to the conversation you had with Rob when, yeah. when you spoke to him uh, you know I, I was a, an annuity consultant in 2013 you know, that was my first introduction into anything to do with pensions uh, so I was there on the phone doing doing all the annuity brokering at that time, it was a busy old job. And then I was watching, um, being the person I was, I was watching the budget. Before you go, just sort of pause. How did you get to that point? What was the path that brought you to being an annuity consultant? It was purely circumstantial, to be honest with you. So at, at the time, my father wasn't very well and I was working in Leeds. So I was working for RBS that actually just broke up the insurance side. So I was moved from RBS to Direct Line Group. And I was doing business continuity and resource management on their insurance okay. sides. And um, my dad lived down in Cambridgeshire, so I wanted to be a bit closer to him. So I moved down and I found the first, went for the first job that I liked the look of, and it was sort of advertised as a as a position to help people with their pensions and pension income and yeah, yeah. making sure people get the best outcome for them and best highest income at that stage because that's that was really the main the main focus from an annuity point of view, and you know coming from insurance, I thought oh, insurance is, is full of clauses, terminology, horrible stuff, so. How much more tricky could pensions be? Famous last words. <laughs> yeah. So sorry, and I interrupted you. You were, I think, you were heading towards the the budget bombshell there. Yeah. So, in case anyone's listening, I was on my lunch break. I promise. And I was I had BBC open and I'm sort of watching the budget unfold. And uh, the phone. The second he said it, I was sort of digesting it. And uh, I, I joke you, uh, I joke you not. Within two minutes of the announcement, so he was still speaking. The phone started to ring on that admin side of the of the business, right. and people were going, "Cancel this transaction, please." Wow. And um, I mean, the long and short of it is, it, it ended with me being given my my uh, redundancy. Yeah, yeah at, at that time, as half the business was or, or, or chose to move on themselves so it was you know, it felt quite personal you know it was a personal impact that that, that announcement yeah. had fortunately things weren't quite as bad as they first appeared so a couple of us 
were kept on, in essence. And some of the other functions left, so positions mainly IT at that stage. And I sort of said, well, I know business continuity from insurance. So I moved over to look after the, the IT and the annuity portal for the company. And then a year and a half later, the admin manager left. So I was responsible for the IT and then the admin team as well. And then in the last couple of years, I've just got really super interested in, in pensions as a whole and pensions policy. And it, you know, dehumulation is very much an area that I worked in. Yeah. So I, I'll be honest, I've gone, I've gone about things the long way around. I've just been reading consultations, responding to consultations, then started getting a bit more brave and putting the odd thing on social media and then reading everyone else's social media posts. And, you know, now I find myself in this really fortunate position of being you know, chair of Hassa's Industry Policy Committee and yeah. getting involved in all these working groups. I feel, you know, very fortunate, if I'm being honest. And every day is still a learning day. Fantastic. Uh, welcome, well, well, welcome to the party. You know, it's just, so, and I think, I mean, it's interesting you were talking earlier on about getting calls from the media. And I think, you know, I can speak from a small amount of personal experience here. If you're one of those few people who is actually interested in this stuff and takes the time to sift through the data and, and spot the trends and have it at your fingertips, also hugely useful to journalists when when the wheel turns and it becomes annuity story day and they, you know, they want some, some fast insights and information from someone they can trust. And, and post-pension freedom with the decline in the annuity market, those, those people are slightly harder to find now, certainly on the annuity market. Yeah, I think, again, just circumstances, right right place, right time, really. And like I said, they've been helped by things like the FCA data, the, you know, the retirement income market data. Uh, I believe I sent you a copy of the, or, or, or you saw a copy of the report that I put together of five years of that, yes. looking at the annuity market. And it's amazing. So it's, it's really quite interesting where the data takes you. It sometimes go against your, your own feelings. Well, and I'm I'm really interested. I'd like to come on to where we are now and also what the direction of travel might be because I'm interested in the fact that ever since George Osborne, you know, he was only supposed to blow the bloody doors off and he, he blew up the whole van back in 2015 uh, or 2014, sorry. But, you know, the path that, that took us there, and, you know, I got, I got involved in annuities back around sort of 2009-ish really because, um, because Hargreaves Lansdowne was an annuity broker then but there was this dysfunction in the marketplace with people not shopping around and getting rolled over by pretty cynical pension providers who were just flogging them poor value contracts to captive customers who didn't really understand that they weren't getting a good deal. You know, that needed fixing. And, you know, Steve Webb was a backbench MP at the time, and he was someone I remember talking to about it at the time, and then he ended up in government. And, you know, that, you know it's funny how the wheel, wheels turn. But I remember very clearly, first of all, the ABI slowly, reluctantly... I mean, actually, to be fair to Otto Torreson, who was the head of the ABR at the time, he recognised that they had to move forward. So they introduced a code of conduct to try and improve the shopping around process. But even after that, everything that the FCA has done, their thematic review of annuities in 2014, um, and their retirement income market study, and then the retirement outcomes review that had, you know, that was, I think, 2017, so you had the pension freedoms in the middle of it. But all the way through, the FCA has been trying to introduce measures to improve the functionality of the market, to try and improve the deal that consumers get, to try and solve this conundrum of how people 
most effectively draw down on their retirement savings and optimize the outcomes from that. And it's still, here we are in 2022, feel, feels like a work in progress. So uh, I'd be interested in just your reflections on, on, on that sort of, on the regulatory journey we've gone on through that. Uh, yeah, I think, I, think, I think you're right, really. And it starts with that ABI code of conduct. You know, they really made a point of saying shop around. And I, I think I remember the wording pretty well being, you, know, you do not have to buy an annuity from us. You know, it was pretty, pretty clear and, and bold up front. But it, it's interesting because, like you say, we've gone through all these other regulatory measures all the way up to today, and we've got annuity information prompts, which is just a very clear bar chart that says, we're offering you this, you can get this. But behaviourally, it it just doesn't quite stack up for a lot of people. You know, I've been saving X amounts for Y amount of years. Am I really going to move it away now for whatever it may well be? I think the bigger the bigger issue potentially is, is around enhanced annuities. Now, I'm conscious I'm using the word enhanced, but under, underwriting's moved on a good way in the last sort of five years or so. So we have much more lifestyling type situations. I think it's that underwritten annuity that's really missing a trick. Can you talk about what proportion of annuity purchases that go on today are underwritten? Yeah, so I know... I know our internal data, so over over time. So I know 90% of all lifetime annuity purchases are underwritten on more than just postcode. So that, that's a really high percentage. If you're talking about you know, pure enhancements, so we're talking health conditions, medical conditions, you're looking closer to the 50-60% mark. But again, it's being an intermediary, you're fortunate because you've got the engagement you're speaking to the individual, you're going through that retirement health form to capture all the relevant information. You know, incumbent providers don't have that benefit a lot of the time. They're relying on that wake-up pack. And if people are just signing on the dotted line, say, yes, that's fine, give, give me this amount of income. I don't know what much more they can do other than say, we're not going to put it into payment until we have the conversation with you or you fill in this form properly. Because that's that's the other thing. The retirement health form is twenty odd pages long. Is someone really going to sit there? Are they thinking about life insurance? Are they thinking oh, every time I put a condition in, I'm going to get less income? You know, that's quite a common one, isn't it? Yeah, and it takes it takes maybe a bit of outside intervention, some someone like yourselves, to actually sit someone down and drag them through the form and say, no, look, this is this is worth it. It will increase your your income in retirement. I know, I mean, it's just interesting looking at the numbers, again, thanks to the FCA. I hate navigating around the FCA website. It's just not a user-friendly website, but there is some useful stuff on there if you go digging for it. So in terms of annual turnover of retirement pots, you're talking about around sort of 600,000 a year, 650,000 pots a year are being accessed. And all of that around typically about 60,000, give or take, maybe 70,000, are being used to buy an annuity. So it's around 10%, give or take, 10% of the retirement yeah. market is, is actually going into an annuity. And within that, I'm inter- I'd kind of be interested in your take around pension-wise, because, because a reasonable proportion of those people who are buying annuities have had a, a pension-wise interaction. Do you see that as having a, a, a beneficial impact? I mean, for example, does that encourage people to, to go through the underwriting process? 
Yeah, I think I think it does. I think you know when we look at pension wise, I think it's something like thirty. Like, like again, I'm doing this from memory, but it's thirty odd percent. I'm sure in the last FCA figures show that they use pension wise before yeah. purchasing an annuity. But I think again, it's a, if we look at the FCA data, like you say, it's around ten percent of all pots access going into annuity, but. When you look at pensions-wide percentage, so after speaking to pensions-wise, what do people do? I think it's nearly double that. I think it was closer to 20% in, in some of the results that they published. So I think for a lot of people, pension-wise has been useful for them to go, okay, now I do want a level of security. And I, I think that's the, the thing for me that I'm hoping dehumanization or the options at pension access is going to change a little bit more. For me, we're not quite doing enough to say you don't have to do 100% of drawdown or 100% of annuity or 100% of full encashment, although that makes sense on, on some cases. I don't think we quite see enough of this natural blending right now, but we might be a touch early. Because my, my gut feel is that people will have a conversation and go, oh, the annuity market is only you know, 10% of overall pots being accessed. But in, in the current climate, we've got a lot of people on DB pensions, they've got secure income, we've got the state pension, the DC pots are probably quite low, probably okay, to be honest. It's probably not far off where you'd want to see it. Whereas in 10 years' time, will we start seeing a bit more of a mixture? I hope so. Yeah, I think that's that's, that's an interesting reflection. I think at the moment, roughly half of all those pots that are being accessed every year just go out in one lump sum payment. So we're talking typically small pots, mostly below 10 grand. Yes. And... You know, if if you have got a DB pension or if you've got other sources of income, and there's this just this little pot of five to ten thousand pounds hanging around, I can, you know, I kind of get it. You know, I can see why people do just cash them out because leaving mm-hmm. that in drawdown and drawing a few quid a year out of it, or going and buying an annuity and getting an income of ten pounds a week or whatever, it just mm-hmm. feels a bit pointless, right? That, that's the other thing as well about when you, when you look at the FCA data is. I think it's important to look at that breakdown of the drawdown figure. So it looks like a really high figure. And then you go, well, actually, somewhere between 55 and 60% of them have just been tax-free cash only. Yes. So I, I know there's, you know, we hope that maybe some of them are using that tax-free cash as income or, or other methods. But my suspicion is that they're not. They're just accessing their tax-free cash. They're just getting their hands on their cash and spending it on... On what else, what, what, anything that they wish, obviously they're entitled to do. But that for me means they haven't made a retirement income decision. They haven't decided on their income yet. They just want to get their hands on their tax-free cash. So I, mean, I absolutely agree with you. And I think, I think there's become a trend in, the, in recent years. So if you've got a DC pot and you take 25% out now, you don't trigger the money purchase annual allowance unless you take one pound more. So that's okay. So you, know, you can keep saving for retirement. But I think that that complicates a bit the whole tax relief system because the way the tax relief system was designed and then how pension pots are being drawn on the other end are becoming increasingly detached. And I mean, that's before we get onto the question of death benefits, which just really irks me. We might come back to that in a minute. <laughs> but I think, I think I've sensed no appetite in the last couple of years from the Treasury to revisit the question of pension taxation. But when I was tweeting about this earlier today, you know, we've just had a report out on the small pots problem. The working groups just published their latest report on that. And they're highlighting that in that, 
one of the key problems in solving the small pension pots problem that came out of auto-enrolment is that the Treasury has just gone and messed with the normal minimum pension age, and that makes it much harder to auto-consolidate people's pension pots without their permission because you might be moving them from a low normal minimum pension age to a higher one. And so you, you might be acting to the customer's detriment there. So that's a case of treasury policy getting in the way of a DWP area solution. That's yeah. absolutely right, isn't it? It's, it's well, I try not to be too mean, but it, it boils the whole thing up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I do keep coming back to the thought that, you know, this we are long overdue a proper revisitation to, to pension taxation. But again, going back to pension freedoms, George Osborne announces this in 2014. And then later that year, in the autumn of 2014, he just kind of almost as an afterthought, he came back and said, oh, and by the way, you know, if you die while you've still got your money in the DC pot, we'll give you these really generous IHT exemptions. So uh, if you're under 75, you effectively get to pass the money on tax-free to whoever you like. <laughs> And even yeah. if you're over 75, there's only income tax to pay on it as and when they draw the money out. And having given all these generous tax breaks up front to build up the pods, to then allow the money to wash out largely tax-free at the other end looks kind of bonkers. And then you think about how that might affect the point you made earlier on about annuity purchases and this, this dynamic of, well, do I hand over all my money and I'll never see it again and what I get is this guaranteed income in return? Or do I keep a hold of this nice big shiny pot of money that I can see and can pass on when I'm dead? It's 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 a it's a pretty harsh comparison, isn't it? Yeah, it's not. It's, and again, it, it probably uh, low to mid earners, though those sort of cohorts, you know, they, they might feel a little bit aggrieved by this because I think that really does help and support those in, in high net worth. To be honest, so there's this thing, isn't it? High net worth pensions, the last thing you want to touch for, for all yeah. those reasons you just outlined. Whereas a lot of people won't be able to be in that position. So I, I completely agree with uh, your, your frustration in and around this point because it's not it's not a level playing field at all. And yeah, I was going to say it's a loophole that needs for me. It's a loophole. It needs closing. Yeah, yeah. I was interested in the point you you raised with me elsewhere around some of the questions around annuity options and the shape of annuities to get purchased. And we've talked a bit about the underwriting question and how obviously we want everybody to go through the underwriting process because it's it's it's, you know, it's a heads I win tails you lose. There's no there's no downside to going through the underwriting beyond the hour of your life you lose going through the form. Yeah. Right. But also questions like getting people to make considered and well-informed decisions around escalation and particularly joint life. And I was interested that you'd raise that point with me around death benefits. And I've just been doing some work on equity release and you know the complaints don't really come from the customers. The complaints come from the customer's families who only find out after the customer's died that the customer had taken out an equity release contract. Ah, oh, look, we're not we've been denied what we thought we were going to get. And I guess you get that a bit with the annuities as well. Yeah, I think that's that's right. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, knowing the work you were doing around equity release, why I thought it may may interest you. I just think at the moment the annuity market is heavily, heavily around single life, a sure guarantee period. So something like a five-year guarantee period, which I suspect is very rarely enforced or, yeah, or required. Yeah. And all of a sudden, this poor partner, typically, you know, from what I'm hearing, it is typically that the spouse has been, been the female, phone up and goes, Where, where's this annuity income? I require this annuity income. And no, my, my husband wouldn't have, wouldn't have selected this if, if he had known. 
And, and it's just such a sad situation to be in. And I wonder whether we explain it well enough, uh, whether we could be doing more or whether we need to move something like where the equity release market has is, is tried to go to in, in recent years, which is actually it's a bit more of a, you know, get the family involved in the decision-making yes. process. Yeah, yeah. And the interesting question on that is consumer duty. You know, which seems to be the universal panacea to all ills in the sector now. And, you know, be an interesting question about whether it's using the old jargon, treating customers fairly, really, uh, but also the, the forthcoming consumer duty, whether selling a single life annuity to a married couple is really consistent with that, unless, you know, the spouse is, is there as well saying, yep, I understand what's going on here and I'm fine with that. I think that's right. I think that's the thing. I mean, if you really want to try and you know sort this problem out as best as we can i think you need that second signature so if you're married then potentially you need that second signature to say no i understand the terms but again you know do people sign things without fully understanding um, i suspect that may happen then anyway yeah for sure so sorry Tom, I was gonna say on, on options I'm, I'm really interested to, you know, around the the sort of no-lose annuities, because I think there's this pushback with annuities may well be that I don't even know if I'm going to get my capital back. Right. So, you know, I put £50,000 in. There's no guarantee I'm going to get that £50,000 back. And, of course, there's, you know, the value protection yep. option, reducing the income by a certain percent each year, but guaranteeing that £50,000 will be returned back, whether the annuitant's live or not. But, but the other thing is, as well, is these sort of extended guarantee periods. I understand it's, it's, you know, it really only works for this particular scenario, but you can get up to a 30-year income guarantee period. And if you present that back as a, a total sum, it's really guarantees much more than what you put in. And if you're still alive, you still get your annual income. And I just think that's an, an interesting option that hasn't really caught on. Yeah, and I guess problem with that is it requires someone to sell that to the customer in inverted commas yeah. to, to really kind of walk someone through the benefits of that and I want to come on in a minute to how the dynamics of how the sector and the distribution and the cost works so we'll come back to that before we do the other thing I wanted to just pick up on was when you look at the drawdown market which has become effectively the default retirement vehicle now we're seeing large numbers of people drawing what look like unsustainable rates of income. And even if we just strip out those small pots that get cashed out in one go, where we look at the pots that have a regular income being drawn off them, and you know, the FCA clumps its data, you know, people taking 2 to 4% and then 4 to 6% and 6 to 8% and 8% and above. In those last two groups, people taking yeah. effectively above 6% income, there are a lot of people, right? Um, I've not yet seen any really really kind of really granular, crunchy data on anyone looking at it and saying, okay, well, what's going on here? Is this a problem? Are people doing this because they know other income will kick in later? Or are they going to do this for the next 10 years and they know the money will run out and then they'll draw on their house? Or are people just taking a higher level of income because that's the standard of living they want and they're just not worrying about tomorrow and then one day the pot's going to run out and then they're going to be in trouble? And I'm just... Again, I'm really interested in your thoughts around that. Yeah, I think, again, it's really interesting. And it's where, for me, the data needs to improve. Because like you say, I've not seen data out there that goes, actually, this, this is the rationale behind this withdrawal rate. But I hear the two extremes. So I hear things like what's happening in Australia and going, people 
are not taking enough. Underdrawing, yeah, indeed. Yeah, they're, they're underdrawing. There's a real fear around that because that can be just as bad as, as overdrawing in some ways. But I, maybe I'm being an optimist, but I, I'm hopeful that a lot of people at 8% are actually just doing so to try and keep themselves underneath a tax bracket and they're just getting rid of that, that pot because they've got other sources of income. Otherwise, there's this other you know, horrible thought where, like you say, it's a bit like a slow car crash waiting to happen. You know, pension freedoms was meant to help people in, in some ways release some of this, this cash and they're, they're grown up enough to look after their own money, which of course many people are. But are they going to be left relying on the state in later life when, when we already have a care issue? Yeah, and interestingly, again, I'm looking at some of the FCA data on this. So the clustering around... The, so if you take those people who are taking 8% and above out of their drawdown plan, there are a lot of them sort of grouped in the thirty to £100,000 pot size yeah. groups. So these, you know, which suggests maybe they're not people who are doing sort of serious wealth planning no. exercises. Which is, so, which is worrying, isn't it, really? It's very, very worrying. Well, yeah, hence my question about who's, who's actually going out and talking to these people? Who's doing a really kind of crunchy analysis of what's going on here, digging into the decision-making processes that are going on? Because like, it feels to me some, someone should be asking those questions. Well, uh, it feels like it's needed and it needs, needs to happen. You know, so what, what do we say? Freedom's 20, 2015, so 27 years later... So people are 65 then, in their 70s now. And then this is why, you know, it's only, only my, my personal viewpoint. I understand it will be tricky, but we've got the midlife MOT. We've got pension-wise. I feel like there really should be something in, in and around 70, 75, just to say to people, let's have a bit of a retirement income health check. Let's have that, that later life MOT. Because, like I say, it's not just about the pension income, which is obviously a, a huge part of it, but we're going to start thinking about care as well. And I think that's a huge shock for people. I, I don't disagree with you, but the problem with that last point you made is that <laughs> government thinking around care provision has been pretty muddled up until now. And it's, I mean, it's just inherently pretty difficult for people to plan for because, because they're not entirely sure what their liabilities might be in that space. But, you know, I agree with you. I think people need more help around this kind of stuff. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fair point. And I think that there's an immediate needs annuity, for example, which is on, a, on an advice basis. And people sometimes ask me about that and say, why is it such a small market? And I think, again, behaviourally, it makes... <laughs> Yeah, that, that's why it's a small market. You don't start to go into a care or put a family member into care and go, right, I must speak to my financial advisor. It's not, it's not the thought process that takes place, unfortunately. So I'm interested in the kind of commercial dynamics of the sector. And we've talked a bit about perhaps the behavioural biases away from annuities. I mean, I like annuities. I think they're a really efficient product. They deliver money where it's needed. And I think the trade-offs on them are actually logical but, not, but don't necessarily go with the flow of human biases. So I get that. And then you look at the market and the mechanisms, the delivery mechanisms, the product solutions. And I'm struck by the way you know, advisor businesses typically have moved towards kind of wealth management, assets under administration, taking a percentage kind of approach. And that's true of platforms as well. And annuities, by comparison, are a bit transactional. So I'll flog you a product, I'll get a couple of percent, end of, right? And, you know, we could perhaps talk a bit about the Nest Blueprint, but a kind of model where you've got a wealth advisor 
actively managing people's transition through into annuities through later life. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, and my apologies to the people who do do this, the advisors that do it, but it doesn't feel like there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on. There seems to be a, a sort of structural bias in the whole system that favours drawdown at the moment over annuities. Yeah, I think, again, it's being, being careful. There's a lot of very good advisors out there that would disagree with this point altogether. But I think there are, like you said, there's some, maybe some bad practices going on due to the temptation of keeping the assets under management, which, of course, you know, helps claw in additional income for the firm, for the individual, and the, the company's overall wealth. So there's a lot of advisory firms being purchased and advisory firm consolidation at the moment so keeping assets under management is a you know a, a priority but that that you know that being said I'm, I'm hoping that's not the majority and you know I think we can see that again by by the FCA data one of the things that really struck me is this perception of you know the amount of annuities being purchased through advice is really low well actually it's still over it's still around a quarter still around a quarter of all annuities were done so on advice. And the other thing that struck me about that, that data was the, the pot size. So you would imagine that it's probably higher net worth and huge funds potentially, but that's simply not the case. I think that the largest pot size was between, or pot bracket rather, was between about, I think, 10 and 29,000. Again, I'm from, I might be slightly off, it might be the it's, 30 it's to 50. It's pretty evenly distributed up to about a quarter of a million pounds. And then annuity purchases above quarter of a million drops off quite steeply. But up until that point, yeah, it is. It's pretty evenly spread. Yeah. So I think, again, you know, it's, it's a perception thing. I think that's the whole thing with pensions as a whole. <laughs> We've got a little bit of a perception issue more than a, a product issue. Yeah. And I think, again, come back to Treasury policy. It, pensions have shifted in people's minds from where they were back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, where it was all DB pensions and you were accumulating a deferred income yeah. to a world where now, where it's just another savings product, it's a cash pot. And yeah. intuitively, you know, instinctively, the, the idea of handing that cash pot over and never to see it again is not something that sits comfortably with people. No, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, people like so Steve, is, yeah, so Steve was talking about things like these default options and uh, I'll be honest, I tend to agree with, with what he's saying on, on that front. But I think that one part of the appeal of the DB pension, I understand it's, you know, it's a fantastic return, I understand that. But it's also the fact that it's, it's just done for me. I'm not thinking about the options. It, it typically includes some sort of inflation protection. It includes something in the event of the, the first death. And it's, it's just sort of sorted. And that's, for me, where the default could come in. And it's really important, the annuity shaping side. If you look to annuitize later, you're building a journey and annuitize at, say, 75, 80, whatever it may well be. Those annuity options are even more important at that stage because they're more likely to be called upon. So it's interesting that so the DWP has just put the question out there about NEST as part of a call for evidence on, on kind of retirement and occupational pensions. And there was that blueprint that Nest came up with, as you pointed out to me, seven years ago. Yeah. And, and that blueprint, and I'd be interested in your thoughts around that because it still looks pretty relevant to me. It's amazing. So <laughs> I refer to it every year for, for someone or other and because deferred annuities is, is quite a hot topic. Uh, it seems to be discussed an awful lot. And I, I do refer to that Nest blueprint because, like I said, I, I still think it works today. And if Nest do indeed get greenlighted to, to offer options, which, in my opinion, I actually think it's sensible and it's probably a matter of when. Anyway, I think it's going to happen at some point in time, even if it's not this time around. 
whether they do follow through with that income blueprint because they've got the scale to make a deferred annuity work, which probably doesn't on an individual basis at the moment in the retail space. Yeah, and also that blend of kind of a bit of drawdown, a bit of cash, a bit of a bit of kind of guaranteed income further down the line. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? It does make sense. And the other option, which I think makes, makes a lot of sense for, for people, is you take, and everyone always says how wonderful the... PLSA's retirement living standards are, and that's because they, they, they are. So, um, you know, I think they're fantastic. But you can take something like the minimum retirement living standard and go, actually, the vast majority of that's going to be made up by the state pension. And then you still probably need a little bit of an annuity. A pension pot of around 20-odd thousand to 30-odd thousand will probably get you to that minimum retirement living standard as it's set today. And then that's guaranteed. So anything you have on top of that enjoy the, the death benefits as they currently are under drawdown, the flexibility, the investment growth. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's quite a nice, secure option for people. It's, for me, that would be the piece of my, not to give my game away, but that's my current thinking of my, my retirement planning. <laughs> you're, you're, you're looking ahead a bit there, Mark, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> but so, so, you know, to what extent is that already being delivered to customers today? Because, okay, Nest can't do that, but there's no reason why outside of Nest, people can't be handed that kind of package of solutions already. Does it happen? And if not, why not? Yeah, so the deferred annuity piece is a real challenge. We've got the solvency reforms being underway, but solvency and capital requirements at the moment make it really difficult to deliver value on a deferred and what I would call true deferred annuity. And the other point on what I consider true deferred annuity as well is value for money for the, for the customer. So if you're pre-purchasing annuity 10, even 10 years in advance. As we've discussed, underwriting the way that annuity rates move daily, you know, are they actually going to get a much worse rate than what they would have got if it was purchased live? Now, I think that's a real challenge in that space as well. But I think a lot of master trusts in particular have gone down a, a pot-based approach. So that this is your income pot, this is your rainy day pot, this is your accumulation pot, and this is your later life annuity pot or whatever it may be. And they've sort of just split it up that way because, like I said, I think there's a real challenge in delivering value for a, a, what is considered a pre-purchase annuity. And that, that works really well in other countries. So somewhere like Chile, I think take-up of deferred annuities is up to like two-thirds, 66%. Wow. So it's huge. But again, culturally, here in the UK, we're not really a prepaid country, are we? You know, so it works probably quite well over there where it doesn't doesn't here. It's really interesting. Uh, yeah, no, and I think it's interesting to draw on international comparisons, and you referenced Australia earlier on, but you also have to be mindful of those cultural differences. That some, some solutions just won't work if you lift them out of the context in which they emerged and try to drop them in elsewhere. How much investment-backed annuity activity do you see so currently, none, because, you know, the, the, the way profit annuity market and the unit-linked annuity market sort of disappeared, especially on the open market. However, back, back when they were being offered on the open market, especially non-advised, I remember it being quite appealing to an awful lot of people, especially the old um, prudential funds. I don't know if they were... They're on the offer over at um, Hargreaves, which I guess you were at the time. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not sure how popular they will be if they came back. Because people, you know, often when talking about CDC, and I don't know if they're being unkind or not, will often say, what's the difference between CDC and a, a with profits annuity? Well, they're certainly pretty close to each other, yeah. And I think, I mean, it's, there was an interesting piece from John Ralph in the FT today, having a bit of a poke at the CDC solution. 
I like John. Sometimes you just you read his pieces and go, oh, just get off the fence, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like I like the fact that he's not afraid to ruffle feathers. You know, you need a, you need a few people like that around, and he, he calls it as he sees it, which is good. So because I mean, you know, as he's pointed out, there are enthusiastic proponents of CDC, and I can see the attractions of it. I'm still not convinced that it will work in in practice. You know, there are. <laughs> I hesitate to upset a slice of my audience here, but like socialism is great in, in theory, but it, its application in practice has sort of found, found a little wanting so far. And arguably the same is true of CDC schemes, that they're great in theory, but no one's actually proved they can work in practice yet. Um, yeah. And, and I think that's important. Yeah, it's, it's all eyes on Royal Mail, isn't it? Yeah. That, that, that's exactly what it is. It's all, all eyes on Royal Mail. And it's been said you know, by, by many people, and I'm just echoing it. it. It's all about that communication, that communication of that we're going to give you an income for life, yes, but it can go down. It shouldn't do, but it can. Now, compare that to drawdown, where if you're just looking at the income, you control it until you get right to the, the bottom of the fund, or an annuity that just says, this is fixed for life. It won't go up or down other than potentially in real terms when you see high inflation. Yeah, so, uh, and I mean, there is no one-size-fits-all solution. No, and I, I was thinking about that today, actually. I was thinking, because I was thinking about these decumulation defaults, and I thought, well, if we go anywhere near like we are in accumulation, we're going to have thousands, thousands of pathways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, which is why I also have, you know, we've talked a bit about Steve Webb. I think, I think it's, you know, Guy Opperman is also right that, Part, at least part of the solution has to lie in getting people more engaged. You know, with the, because the days of DB pensions are gone and they're not coming back any time that we can see. So it is now our individual problem that we have to own. And so the onus is on the, the industry and policymakers to find ways to help people make the most of the responsibilities and decisions that they, that they do have to take on themselves. And, and so, so that question, well, let's at least start by getting a little bit more engaged in what's happening here, to me, seems eminently sensible. And I was really interested in your suggestion of a, a later-life MOT as well as a midlife MOT. Yeah, I know there's always going to be problems of getting people to use these type of things. You know, I'm no, not under any illusions on that. But I think, I think it is really important because at, at the moment, you know, we're, we're using an annuity really across the board, aren't we? We're saying, you get your wake-up pack, this is how much income you can get, even though it draw down to the default, everyone's showing a, an annuity, and then if I'm being honest, it's a low annuity at that, so it's not even what the open market would, lowest on the open market would give you. So it doesn't look that that appealing. And then again, throughout drawdown, there should be this, for me, there should be, a, I'm surprised it's not there already, it should really just be a mechanism when it says, look, you'll capture the medical information, keep it up to date, annuity rates are now higher than your drawdown income. Would you like to take a slice? I like the sound of that. You know, and that's... See, that, my last question to you, Mark, was going to be, you know, do you see annuity markets picking up again in terms of turnover, in terms of activity, in terms of sales numbers? And also, what's going to make that happen? And you've kind of sort of answered the second half of that question a bit, because I think you make a really good observation there, a bit more pressure on the drawdown providers to keep pointing people to annuity purchases sounds to me like a really good idea but do you see it picking up again and if so what's going to make it happen yeah i i, I do see it picking up again because people like guaranteed income uh, and i think that's never going to go away and, and i think that will come as people get older you know for or, you know a lot of the reasons that everyone talks about so 
a little bit more security, not having to worry about investment risk, maybe even cognitive decline and all this sort of side of things. So the annuity comes back into the picture, especially in older age. And like I said, we're seven years from freedoms. So people are now getting into their 70s if they were 65 when that was first introduced. So the next sort of five years, I think, is that sort of telltale sign. Are we going to start seeing a pickup in the annuity market? And, and it is a rate-driven market. So today we're at six odd percent for a 65-year-old to get a standard conventional annuity rate on £100,000. And I know postcodes will change this by a couple of hundred pounds each way. But that, that's already going to start you know, causing some interest back from you know, 4.5% three, four years ago. Yeah. Good. Okay, there's an element of optimism in there. <laughs> Can't predict the future, and I'm not going to fall into that trap. <laughs> nice one. Brilliant, Mark Olmson. It's been fantastic to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.